This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I believe this election is about who we are as a nation, about what makes us Americans. This election will decide whether we save the American dream or whether we allow a socialist agenda to demolish our cherished destiny. This is a special edition of America Changed Forever. You know, Biden wants to lock it down. He wants to listen to Dr. Fauci. I'll shut down the virus, not the economy. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. Election 2020. America decides. Welcome. I'm Gil Gross. With the election right around the corner, polls show us that Joe Biden is ahead in the popular vote. But as Hillary Clinton, Al Gore, Samuel J. Tilden, Grover Cleveland, and Andrew Jackson could tell you, it doesn't matter. All of them lost an election that they won in the popular vote to the Electoral College. That the Electoral College was more important than the popular vote was clear early on, as Jackson, who got 10% more of the popular vote, lost to John Quincy Adams in the election of 1824. The first one where the popular vote really mattered, with 18 of the 24 states having switched to popular vote instead of state legislatures picking electors. So if the Electoral College doesn't always express the will of the people, why do we even have it? Edward Larson is a professor of law and history at Pepperdine University. His Pulitzer Prize-winning book in the Scopes trial, Summer for the Gods, shows how that trial opened a cultural divide that informs our political debates and views on science and religion to this day. Among his other books is one that I'll bring up in a moment that's more germane to this conversation. Ed, good to have you with us. How are you doing? Thanks, Gil. Great to be here. Well, to steal a phrase from The Sound of Music, let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. Why do we have the Electoral College? Basically, the simple answer is we have an Electoral College because it was a compromise at the Constitutional Convention. And of course, compromises by their very nature never satisfy everyone. They didn't satisfy everyone then. They don't satisfy everyone now. It was a compromise between those who wanted Congress to pick the uh, president, sort of like happens in England or France or Germany, where the where the parliament picks the prime minister, which was the original Virginia plan, and those who wanted a direct election of president led by people like Hamilton and Franklin and other other northerners. It's a compromise between the two of them. Uh, the problem with having a um, uh, Congress pick the uh, president was that it seemed to violate their notion of separation of powers. The problem with having a direct election of president was a lot of states, you know, the northern states, they basically let all adult white males vote. 
In some northern states, they even let women vote, which would boost their numbers, while in southern states, they didn't let African-Americans vote. They, of course, they didn't let slaves vote. And in some of those states, up to half the people were slaves, and they didn't even let free African-American votes. So they would have less votes. And then when you if you use that approach, of course, the northern votes, letting everybody vote or all adult white males, that would swamp that reduced southern vote. So by going to electoral college, you let every state have its power, its vote, based on the number of, of people in the states or some reduction with the three-fifths compromise for slaves, but no reduction for free blacks. But yet you could limit the vote. You could restrict the vote to property owners, uh, property-owning adult white males, uh, free males. You could put any sort of restriction on who could vote you wanted. Therefore, that was part of a states versus central government compromise, just like the compromise over having two votes for every state, elite, two votes senators for every state, or the three-fifths compromise. Yeah, very much so. And it has an effect on our history because of the way this was done, especially the three-fifths compromise on African-American slaves. Virginia ended up with more electoral votes, even though it had a smaller actual voting population than Pennsylvania. And for 32 of the first 36 years under our Constitution, it was a slaveholding Virginian as president. Maybe that would not have been the case. These were, you know, men who were great in other respects, but still that was an important part of the history. Well, it certainly wouldn't have been the case in 1800. In 1800, that famous election, Adams would have won if you had apportioned the votes based on voting rights. That is, that if you didn't get that extra boost in the South by the three-fifths compromise that helped push Jefferson over the top. Okay. So those supporters of the Electoral College argued that it protected the rights of the minority, the original minority being slaveholders. What it's done now is to make most of America irrelevant. I I took a look at 2016. More than 90 percent of the campaign stops took place in just 11 battleground states, and two-thirds of those took place in just four swing states, North Carolina, Florida, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. And even within those four states, it's really just a handful of swing districts that get visited. So most of the country's needs are never addressed by candidates on on, either side. So the flooding and damage caused by increasingly strong hurricanes in the Gulf isn't mentioned because the Gulf, except maybe for Georgia this year, and Florida possibly are reliably red. The destruction of fires in California aren't mentioned because that state's reliably blue. It's really, again, made most American voters irrelevant to the outcome. It does do that. And uh, they talk about states saying, well, the it gives extra power in a way to small states. And, and it does. States like Delaware and Wyoming and Vermont, small states end up with three electoral votes when if it was just their voters, it would be um, they would have less impact. But when you talk about ignoring certain states, um, it's funny. Um, the it would, if it was a popular vote for president, well, people would go to where people are. Uh, candidates and, and electoral campaigning and, and TV ads would go to where people are. And so some states that are now totally ignored, like Missouri, um, uh, people would be uh, candidates would be going because there would be votes in St. Louis. People would be going to Los Angeles and they'd be going to New York where they're not going now. They'd be going to Houston. They'd be going to places where um, where the people are. And that includes some of the flyover states. They'd be going to Salt Lake City because a Democrat could still rack up a lot of votes in Salt Lake City. Votes would matter. 
different states would be skipped. It wouldn't, there'd be a different set of flyover states if you had a popular vote. And it wouldn't necessarily be those um, that were rural. It would be, you'd go where people are. And so uh, where now you go where the elect, the popular vote in that state is close. So you go to Ohio and Wisconsin and, and Florida. You know, a final thing on this, because it's really come up from both sides in this election year, just as conservatives are now arguing they believe mail-in ballots leave an election open to misrepresentation of the vote. Liberals, especially after the Clinton and Gore elections, argue the Electoral College does the same thing because it gives small states electoral votes outsized for their population and makes our election not representative. You know, we could debate those two sides on a separate show forever, but I think the important part of this right now is there's a huge number of Americans on both sides of the political fence who doubt the fairness of the results of our elections. And and that's not a good thing for democracy. No, uh, that's a tremendous worry. It's separate, though, of course, from the electoral vote controversy, because that undermines belief in the, you know, the, the people rule, because you shift it to different states. But while it says it gives more power to small states, as you noted, it really doesn't necessarily, because if the small states are are all one-sided, that they're all Republican or they're all Democrat. If they're, for example, Wyoming or Delaware, it doesn't give much extra power to them because the votes are automatic. Yet some other small states like New Hampshire um, do well because they're close. And it's the same way with the questions about mail-in voting. Uh, Mail-in voting can have its problems, but it can also be operated well. We have many states like Colorado that do all their voting by mail-in voting, and it really works quite well. Voting in person can have its problems if you have um, if you can't trust the electoral mach- uh, electoral vote machines and the election um, ballots. So um, certainly, the integrity of the election and how much it reflects what we view as our democratic principles is a central issue in this and every election, and we're we're getting it more than ever because we have people pushing the idea that there are problems with how we vote. And whether that's coming from Russia or from coming from domestic critics, it's um, we're hearing it more than ever. Ed Larson is professor of law and history at Pepperdine University. Ed, I appreciate your spending the time for a controversy. I'm sure we're going to go back to every four years until through time immemorial. It's tough to see the Electoral College changing because it's so tough to pass in a a constitutional amendment. And two people gained from the two types of states gained from the Electoral College, those that um, are small states and those that suppress votes. And you add those together, it's tough to imagine having uh, enough states to pass a constitutional amendment. Ed Larson, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. You're listening to America Changed Forever. Election 2020, America Decides from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to a special edition of America Changed Forever, Election 2020, America Decides. I'm Gil Gross. If there is one thing both Trump and Biden voters agree on, and this may be the only thing, this is an election of enormous consequences. And if we spend a lot of time on this particular program talking about the Electoral College, it's because everything depends on the outcome there. 
And back with us this week is Chief CBS Washington correspondent Major Garrett, himself the host of podcasts that have helped listeners work their way through this election, the takeout and the debrief. Major, welcome back. How are you doing? Great to be with you, Gil. I'm in New York. Uh, we are going through preparations at CBS election headquarters in Midtown Manhattan. We are getting ready for what will be in every way, shape and form a historic Tuesday night. It is going to be historic, maybe an historic Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, Thursday, Friday and on and on. <laughs> it might be. It very well might be. And that is if it's going to be close. And there is a probability that it's going to be close. You have to assume that incumbent presidents can keep things close. In our history, incumbent presidents are generally reelected, but when they're not, they tend to lose lopsidedly. But as we have learned, Donald Trump as a candidate and Donald Trump as president of the United States has toppled almost every political norm in this country. And so it is very difficult for me to tell you that even though he is running behind in many of the states he won in 2016, and that incumbents facing re-election are referenda candidates, meaning the judgment is on them, not on the atmosphere as it was in 2016. Do you want to change? Well, if you want to change, Donald Trump was an attractive option. He's now the one saying, judge me by what I've done. And typically when approval ratings are low and you're running behind in battleground states, you don't have a chance. But Donald Trump topples many of those understood norms. So you have to say to yourself, He's still in the game. Yeah, the understood norms is a fascinating thing because the president got good news this past week with a great rise in gross domestic product. But he seems bored talking about it, even though the economy is still his greatest source of credibility. The other day, he actually complained at a rally that politicians want him to get off the Hunter Biden story and talk economy, but he would rather talk about Hunter Biden, even though the people who seem to be interested in whatever there is or is not in that story seem to be people already devoted to Trump and not people who are sitting on the fence. Precisely. And that is in itself a look into the mind, the political mind of President Trump, because he believes his supporters love to hear lacerating criticism of the corruption of anyone else not named Donald Trump. And they delight in the idea that Donald Trump continues to look at the Washington establishment, the swamp as they view it, and continue to clash with it and take it on. Here's an interesting thing, Gil, that uh, Reince Priebus, who is a CBS contributor, he's a smart political guy, told me earlier this week, which is, yes, the president's running behind and under any other normal set of circumstances, if I was the challenger talking about this race, Looking at all the numbers, I would say we're going to kick that incumbent's rear end because he just doesn't have a chance. He's too far behind. But he said, you know what? Donald Trump doesn't feel like an incumbent. He's still fresh. He's still new. He's still unconventional. I ran that theory by a couple of very well-experienced Democratic strategists, and they said, you know what? That's probably right. Donald Trump is not like a career politician, so he's viewed differently. The gravitational forces that would ground most traditional politicians do apply, but not as aggressively to Donald Trump. That's why, despite a pandemic, despite racial strife, despite a lingering recession, he's still in this race. And he's still in this race also because we choose, as we're making a point of this week, through the Electoral College. And 
Florida is going to be a major, major state in this race. And it always seems to be a problem for pollsters. Even after pollsters said, well, we fixed the stuff from 2016, they got it entirely upside down again in 2018 with the Republican Governor DeSantis winning election by four-tenths of a point, even though the polls had it called for Andrew Gillum by three-and-a-half points. So, you know, it leaves both sides questioning what the polls are telling us, especially in some of the tight battleground states. Exactly. So the Trump campaign is one of two things in Florida, Gil. It is either laughably or laudably bullish about Florida. The Trump campaign has already told me and many other reporters who've asked, Florida's locked. Don't even worry about Florida. We've got it. And what do they mean by that? They mean that on election day, the Republican Trump turnout will so overwhelm the Biden Democratic turnout by a factor they estimate of 200 to maybe 400,000 votes that whatever banked lead Democrats and Joe Biden have in the early vote, whether it's in person or absentee, will be overwhelmed and that Trump will win Florida in a walk. That's their understanding of the electorate. One key problem, or at least potential problem in that analysis, Gil, when you ask the Trump campaign, what is your overall turnout model in Florida? How many voters do you expect to show up? They don't have that number. Or if they do, they don't want to disclose it. The Biden campaign will, which means if you have a turnout number, you have a win number. You know what that win number is, Gil? 50% plus one of your turnout number, just enough to win. The Biden campaign believes they know the size of the electorate. They know where their voters are. They know they will turn them out early and on Election Day. And if they do, Biden will be competitive. And if he wins Florida, it's over. Let's talk about the Senate, because that is almost every bit as consequential as the race for the White House. If Trump wins, but the Senate goes blue, he's going to be blocked from many of the things he wants to do. If Biden wins, but the Senate stays red, he'll be able to reverse Trump's executive orders, which are legion, of course, but have a hard time doing much else. And a lot of these Senate races are tight. They are. And if there is a psychic feel in the country that breaks late for the challenger, in this case, Joe Biden, and those of us who remember the 1980 presidential campaign, that was the first ballot I ever cast, Gil. I was just a freshman in college. That looked close until it broke late for whom? The challenger, Ronald Reagan, against the incumbent, Jimmy Carter. If there is a break like that, you could see many of the states, though close, going to Biden and with them many Senate races. What's interesting about what you just described is, could Trump lose and Republicans still withhold control of the Senate? It is possible, not mathematically likely, but possible, and here's why. In 2016, many Senate Republicans up for re-election ran ahead of Donald Trump. Ron Johnson did in Wisconsin. Marco Rubio did in Florida. Uh, Roy Bunt did in Missouri. I think, no, Trump ran ahead of him in Missouri, but most of the Republicans ran ahead, meaning they got more popular votes than Trump did in 2016. So it's theoretically possible that could play itself out. But one other thing I would remind you and the audience of, Gil, this is the class of Republican senators elected in 2014. Two things about that environment. One, it was net hostile to the Obama administration and to President Obama and Democrats generally. And two, that was a historically low turnout, even for a midterm election. Well, What's the environment now? If it's not net hostile to the president, it's net worried and anxious about the economy and the pandemic, not the best atmosphere for Republicans. And it will be not a low turnout, but a very high turnout. Yeah. And let's use that 1980 Major Garrett's first vote, as I will think of it forever after. 
as as an interesting situation because part of what happened for that late break toward Ronald Reagan and away from Jimmy Carter was, of course, the Iran hostage issue. It just seemed to cover everything on a competing network. Uh, Ted Koppel began a nightly program, America Held Hostage, that turned into Nightline. We were obsessed with it, and it hurt Jimmy Carter badly. The president complained in this election just the other day that this election is COVID, 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 claiming that the news media would not even be talking about that much on November 4th. But we are hitting a tremendous surge, a lot of it in the Midwest, in Donald Trump territory. And this affects not just life and death, but the economy and therefore almost everything else as well. Exactly. And I said on CBS, our special report coverage, the night of the president's Oval Office address back in March about coronavirus, when we were all still grappling with what this was, what it might pretend, and how to respond. I said, this will be the greatest challenge for President Trump in this White House because a virus cannot be intimidated. A virus cannot be yelled into submission. A virus cannot be bludgeoned on Twitter. The virus doesn't care about any of the central tactics that President Trump brings to his full-on and very forceful orientation to politics. And it still doesn't care. Gil. And I guarantee you, hospitals that are feeling the stress of hospitalized patients for COVID will still feel that stress on November 4th, 5th, 6th. We'll all still have socially distanced Thanksgivings and Christmas or none at all in person because of the virus. And when the president says that, lots of Americans say that can't possibly be true. And as a matter of fact, you've been saying that for the better part of seven or eight months, and it's still with us. And the market reaction, even though to the very positive very historically positive GDP numbers you talked about at the beginning, is still worried about the economic disruption of every positive case. Not everyone who gets COVID dies or even goes to the hospital, but every single case is disruptive in a family, in a neighborhood, in a business. Yeah, especially as businesses shut down. Very quickly, the base of GOP is Trump country, will be for some time, even if he loses, a base that accepts things like QAnon conspiracy theories. And Republican primaries and caucuses will be the party of Trump or his offspring for years. What does that mean to the party? Well, it all depends on whether he wins or loses. If he wins, it's a continuation and a cementing of that. If he loses, the post-Trump era begins instantly, and other people will try to define what that world is and how much of those conspiracy theorists get to participate. CBS Chief Washington Correspondent Major Garrett, also the host of podcasts, The Takeout and The Debrief. Major, as always, thank you for being with us. Thanks so much, Gil. You're listening to a special edition of America Changed Forever, Election 2020, America Decides. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch 
Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back to a special edition of America Change Forever, Election 2020, America Decides, from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. When America decides, it isn't always pretty. One year it was downright ugly. Mo Rocca from CBS Sunday Morning tells us about one of the five elections when the popular vote loser won the White House. 1876 was a banner year for America, the 100th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. A nationwide celebration with a full fifth of the country's population descending on Philadelphia for the Centennial Exposition. But beneath the revelry, there was a deep sense of unease. This was the depths of a pretty serious economic depression. There was widespread unemployment. There were fairly violent labor disputes going on in various parts of the country. And says Columbia University history professor Eric Foner, the country was still feeling the aftershocks of the Civil War, which had ended only 11 years before. There was still violence in the South, which had existed since the Civil War because of white supremacists' opposition to the giving of citizenship rights to the former slaves. So it was not a tranquil year, that's for sure. 1876 was also a presidential election year. And all of these issues, plus the rampant corruption in the administration of outgoing President Ulysses S. Grant, would factor into the contest. The Republicans ran Ohio Governor Rutherford B. Hayes. Was he charismatic? I wouldn't say so. Dustin McLaughlin is the historian at the Rutherford B. Hayes Presidential Center in Fremont, Ohio. He really exemplified that American tradition of the office seeks you, you don't seek it. Meanwhile, the Democrats were hungry to reclaim the White House, which they hadn't won in 20 years. Their candidate, New York Governor Samuel Tilden, a bachelor lawyer, had made his name fighting big city corruption. Tilden and Hendricks, with Tilden and Hendricks, for Tilden and Hendricks. The man was um, a bit lethargic, and quite frankly, a lot of people thought he was dull. Dull but dedicated. Neither candidate, says Eric Foner, was exactly Mount Rushmore material. There's another way of putting it. Both of them were basically mediocrities, politically. Still, the turnout that November 7th remains the highest ever for a presidential election. On election night, Tilden was ahead in the popular vote by 260,000 votes. Hayes actually goes to bed believing Tilden had won, and he actually has interviews with reporters saying, I have lost. The Republican Party has to step in and tell him to stop saying that. That's because Republican officials still saw a narrow path to victory for Hayes. If Hayes could carry the three southern states where the results were not yet clear, Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina, he would win by one electoral vote. And just as in the year 2000, America in 1876 woke up the morning after the election not knowing who had won. But as the weeks dragged on, neither side was willing to concede. With inauguration just days away and the nation on edge, representatives for both candidates 
met in Washington for secret negotiations. Ironically, they took place at Warmly House, a major hotel which is owned by a black man, Warmly, probably the most well-to-do African-American in the city of Washington at that time. Ironic, because the agreement forged there, known as the Compromise of 1877, would have long-lasting repercussions for black Americans in the South. The Democrats will not stop the inauguration of Hayes. They will accept Hayes as president. Hayes will end the remaining Reconstruction. In other words, the Republicans get the White House. The Democrats effectively regain control of the American South. No more federal protection of the rights of recently freed African Americans. The Democrats promise they will respect the basic rights of the former slaves, which they do not do. Rutherford B. Hayes was certified as president on March 2, 1877. Samuel Tilden accepted the decision. Three days later, Hayes was inaugurated in a peaceful transfer of power. I think if either Hayes or Tilden had been of the personality that was very aggressive, that was very intense, really wanted this presidency for very selfish reasons, I think the whole tenor would have changed. Today, says Christy Weininger, President Hayes is remembered less for what he did during his single term in office than for the election that threatened once again to tear apart the country. Are visitors bringing up the election of 1876 more? They're very interested in how divisive the country was then. And somehow knowing that we've been there before and survived, I think gives some comfort and some hope to people. You're listening to a special edition of America Changed Forever, Election 2020, America Decides from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to a special edition of America Changed Forever, Election 2020, America Decides from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. In another segment of this program, we looked at why we got the Electoral College in the first place. But that brings us to another question. If many of the reasons we first got it, a compromise over how to count slaves, concern about how informed voters might be in the days before telegraph and telephone, much less broadcasting and internet, considering that those concerns were all outdated, why do we still have it? Five elections in our history, two of them quite recently, have seen the popular vote overturned in the Electoral College. It's possible this one would be number six. So why is this still a thing? Alexander Kazar's new book precisely asks this question, why do we still have the Electoral College? He is the Sterling Professor of History and Social Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. There has been something like 700 bills over the years to reform or abolish the Electoral College. Polls find almost two-thirds of Americans want to do away with the thing. We almost got rid of it in 1969. Why has that never happened? The first is that it's hard to amend the U.S. Constitution, and it's difficult, if not impossible, to change the electoral system without amending the Constitution. But to amend the Constitution, you need two-thirds majorities in both branches of Congress, and uh, then... support of three quarters of the states. Um, the example you mentioned in 1969, 1970, it got, an 80, it got a resolution to abolish the Electoral College and replace it with the national popular vote, got an 83%, 82, 83% vote in the House. It had a clear majority in the, in the Senate, but not enough votes to override a filibuster. So first thing is the Constitution is hard to amend. The major factors, I think, are that there have been some periods when partisan interests 
um, have prevented reform. And we are living in one of those periods now. This has not been true throughout U.S. history. There's often been bipartisan support for reform of one type or another. But since 1980, we have lived in a period when the Republican Party, frankly, has had no interest in reform. It believes, or most of its members believe, that um, that the Electoral College benefits its candidates, and thus they don't want to change it. So partisan considerations are very strong. But the national popular vote has been, been blocked. A national popular vote has been, was blocked from the late 18th century into the 1970s by Southern political leaders who, uh, who in order to maintain white, uh, white supremacy and to maintain their power, uh, did not want to reform the Electoral College. This was, uh, this was very clear in the era be before the Civil War when Southern states got electoral votes on behalf of three-fifths of uh, their slaves. And they didn't want to give that up, and it gave them more power. What's less well-known is that beginning in the late 19th century um, in southern states, African-Americans were again disenfranchised, but they were counting for entirely for representation, so that southern whites benefited from what we, we might call a five-fifths clause. And they and southern politicians were absolutely adamant that if they, gave, if it, they switched to a national popular vote, then there would be pressure on them to enfranchise African-Americans and or they would lose their strength and influence um, in elections because th their influence would only come from the number of people who voted. And there are other problems. I mentioned Pennsylvania. There you have, as several states, you have a legislature of one party, a governor of another. The legislature could decide to change the rules as to how the electors are chosen changing the outcome. You could have a situation where two slates of electors are, are delivered, and, and then you've got an interesting fight. <laughs> Inter interesting, an interesting word choice there. Um, uh, yes, a a absolutely. The, the wording of the Constitution uh, makes clear that uh, the, state legislatures, the state legislatures decide how electors uh, will be chosen. And there's evidence from Bush v. Gore that suggests that they can, even after having decided to hold an election, that they can take that they can take that power back. Whether they can do it after the people have voted will, of course, be be create will be a, a work project for lawyers. So those are the big reasons. There are a bunch of contributory ones, but uh, those are the big ones. It's funny because we invented modern democracy. By we, I mean the United States, not the, the two of us. Uh, but no other country has followed our lead in the electoral college system. That's it's absolutely right. Uh, the electoral college has you know, never, never been imitated. It's a feature of American democracy, which other countries do not talk about with respect and admiration. There were a few Latin American republics in the early 19th century, which also used a kind of indirect election system where you didn't vote for the person, you voted for somebody who then voted for the person, but they got rid of those by about the 1830s. Um, and, you know, and um, people around the world are bewildered by our electoral system. I, I, was, I, was, I was doing interviews yesterday in France and the day before in Germany, um, trying to explain it and trying to explain to a puzzled people why we still have it. You know, wrapping up, I want to go back to the beginning of this whole thing. There's that old joke about a camel being a horse designed by a committee. 
when the Constitution was put together, nobody could really agree on how to elect a chief executive, whatever they were going to call it at that time, and left it to a small group called the Committee on Unfinished Parts. So we could call this whole thing the result of a bicameral institution instead of bicameral. But how was how did this come to be? Because I think most of us think everybody was, you know, working in the Constitution and did this. And it it comes out that it's a committee I think most Americans studying their history have never heard of. Yes, and 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 with good reason. Well, we we like to think of the August Framers meeting in Philadelphia in um, in this lovely spot. We you know the the true story is that they were tired. It was the end of August. It was Philadelphia is hot in the end of August, um, and they had a few things that they hadn't that they really hadn't resolved. Uh, and this was when they they went around and around in the course of the summer. Should Congress choose the president? Should the people choose the president? Should the governors? Um, and they were very tired, and they took a break for a week and left it to this committee, the Committee on Unfinished Parts, or sometimes called the Committee on Postponed Parts. Um, and that committee came up with this idea. And I think that um, I think that what was appealing to the committee and then later to the members of the convention itself um, was that this looked a little bit like Congress choosing the president, that the, the, the structure of the Electoral College in terms of representation, the number of delegates you get, the number of, of electors you get equals the, the size of your congressional uh, delegation. It looks like a Congress, except that it meets only once and does no business other than to cast electoral votes. So there's not the problems of separation of powers or corruption that could happen if Congress choose the president chose the president. And the second appeal, I think, was that they the, the the members of the convention had fought hard and long earlier in the summer to come up with those, comprom- those key compromises between small states and large states and slave states and free states. And those were built into the congressional representation system. They had resolved that. They had reached those decisions by July. By structuring the Electoral College, the presidential selection system, as they did, they imported those compromises into the process of presidential election and thus didn't have to reopen these knotty issues of small state versus large state or slave state versus free state. Alexander Kazar's new book asks the question, why do we still have the Electoral College? There's more that we could talk about here, but I think that's going to have to go to the Committee on Unfinished Interviews. Professor Kazar, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to a special edition of America Changed Forever, Election 2020, America Decides, from the CBS Audio Network. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. 
Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to a special edition of America Changed Forever, Election 2020, America Decides from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Well, on election night, we're all going to be following exit polls, which are what exactly? CBS News Radio White House correspondent Stephen Portnoy asked that very question of Jennifer DePinto from the CBS News Election and Surveys Unit. We hear the term so often we take it for granted, but for listeners who might not know, what is an exit poll? Well, an exit poll is a survey that is administered to voters as they leave a polling location after they are they have voted uh, an interview, an interviewer is stationed near the polling location and gives the voter a piece of paper that has a questionnaire on it. And the questionnaire includes uh, ha- asks how you voted today, usually what issues were on your mind when you voted today. And it also asks demographic information, your age, race, sex, uh, level of education. And this all helps us tell stories throughout election night. It's a physical survey then that's actually taken at the, the actual polling place. How, do you know how many polling places are actually part of this survey and this large sample all across the country? We would probably talk to about more than 70,000 people across the country. And it takes place at about 800 precincts between seven and 800 precincts across the country. An incredibly labor-intensive process. How does the exit poll, though, account for the people who didn't actually go to the polls? So amid the coronavirus outbreak, we had a record number of voters cast their ballots before Election Day. So what we did was we started interviewing in mid-October at early voting locations. We had interviewers stationed there and asked voters to complete the survey. And in addition to that, to account for the male voters, the people who chose to cast their ballots by mail, we interviewed them by telephone. And we started doing that about a week or a few days before Election Day. And on election night, when you see these results, you see the combined, you see early voters as well as election day voters, and then you get the total electorate. Jennifer, take me behind your election day process. What's this day like for you? At about five o'clock is when we have a briefing with uh, fellow producers and reporters uh, at CBS News, and we let them know what's going on uh, regarding the exit polls, and then those results get released shortly after that. And that helps us and the audience understand not just the dynamics of, of the race in each particular state, but the makeup of the electorate and the issues on voters' minds. One thing that people may not know, though, is that the data that is initially reported by uh, you and your colleagues at 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time sometimes changes through the night. How does that happen? Yes. Yeah. We continue uh, to interview all the way until the polls close. So it's possible that you can see things change over time as different types of voters may vote at different times during the day. So we keep an eye on that and look for any patterns or any differences that might happen in the data as the night goes on. By the end, though, uh, it's also weighted, right? So that it reflects the actual raw returns. Once we have all the vote count in, that poll will be weighted to the actual result. And then looking back, you'll be able to see how certain demographics voted during this election, the issues that were on their minds, what they thought was important in electing a president. You've been listening to a special edition of America Changed Forever, Election 2020, America Decides, from the CBS Audio Network. Produced by District Productive and Paul Whitty Woodhull, I'm Gil Gross. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. 
the winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.